Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. Hey everybody, Pastor Matt here from Roots Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. I want to thank you for joining us for this week's message. We are in the, in the second week of a three-week mini-series where we're talking about people and telling stories of people who lived God's purposes. Here at RCC, our goal is to grow, connect, and live. Grow deep roots into Christ, connect to community, and then go and, you, and live God's purpose. We are trying to establish deep roots into Christ, not so that we can stay in one location, but so that relationship can grip our heart and lead us into places where we can uh, we can find people who need the gospel, find people who need help, find people who uh, need to be served with um, with the heart that God has given us for them. And that will ultimately lead towards shining a light in the darkness for them. Jesus talked about doing this in Matthew chapter 5, and he said this, you are the salt of the earth. He's talking to you as a believer in Christ. You are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it's lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot and as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Jesus made this statement early on in his ministry, and it completely connects and correlates to the last instruction that he gave his disciples, which was the Great Commission, going into all the world and make disciples of all people. One of the ways that we share the gospel is we go into places that need the salt, that need the light, in his analogy, and we, and we become those things. Many people are not introduced to Christ because they don't know anyone who's truly been transformed by him and is being that light in a dark place. It's being that salt in a place that needs that flavor. Paul um, echoes this and kind of even drills down a little bit further on it in Romans 10, 13 through 15. He says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why... The scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. Paul is breaking this down, kind of like the the, the great preacher that he is. He's breaking this down to a ground level. You need to get saved. Yes, how are they going to get saved? Well, they need to hear about Jesus. Yes, they need to hear about him. How are they going to hear about him? Well, someone needs to tell him. Well, who's that someone going to be? It is us. It is the the existing church, the people who are already believers in Christ. We are tasked, all of us, without a special call, without a special assignment, we are tasked to go and be the salt and light of the world. 
I came up in a generation where people were very concerned about the will of God for their life. What is God's will for my life? What does he want me to do? And I think more times than not, that was about a specific assignment. Where does, where does he want me to go specifically to do something for him or to carry out a part of his plan? But we got caught up on what is God's will? What is God's will? Jesus has given us commands in scriptures that we are to follow until the Holy Spirit leads you to a specific assignment. And there are many times, like with the gentleman that we're going to talk about today, and we're going to tell his story, that God will use his word to grip your heart in a way that it will become just painfully obvious that what you're supposed to do, what your assignment is, but ultimately it all reverts back to um, just a different way that God is having us go into the world and be the salt and be the light to everyone. Paul says that, um, he kind of echoes what I, I think it's where in Isaiah where he says, how beautiful are the feet of those messengers who bring good news. He's just saying that, man, it is a great thing for people who have the good news of the gospel to take it throughout the world and to give it to those who need it. And this is somebody uh, that we're going to talk about today that um, would qualify with that statement. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? <clears throat> the the person that we're going to, um, I'm going to tell you about today in this story is a real story of a gentleman who was, who actually just passed away last year in 2022, but his name was Brother Andrew. I'll tell you why they call him Brother Andrew and don't normally refer to him by his last name as we get deeper into the story. <clears throat> he was born in the Netherlands, Holland for some of us, um, in 1928. That's in northern the northern part of Europe. He spent much of his childhood uh, participating in athletics. He loved to run. And as he participated in all of these different you know, sports and events and things, he really took a keen interest in, in running, but specifically long distance running. He was not only had a great interest in it, because I know a lot of people who have interests in things that are not very good at them. Like, I would love to be a better singer, but I do not have that gift, right? <clears throat> but he, he didn't have that problem when it, come, it came to running. He was somebody who, who really wanted to run and run long distance. Now, I'm six foot four, over 200 pounds. Running is not my jam at all. And if you are with me, you can say amen or type it underneath in the chat here because, yeah, it was uh, running's not my thing, but it was for him. And it wasn't just running. It was long distance running. And that was his focus. His dream began to zero in on what he could accomplish either through college or school or Olympics or whatever, what he could accomplish on long distance running. As he came of age, he decided to serve his country, and he enlisted in the Dutch army in the mid to late 1940s. And he was stationed in Indonesia, which at the time, um, uh, the Netherlands had kind of posted up a colony there, and they were at war with the Indonesian people because they were trying to consider the um, uh, Indonesia as a Dutch colony. He was living there, and he saw the, uh, the, the struggle for mankind um, and, and these human leaders who they wanted to, to increase their, um, their, their power. They wanted to increase the land that they 
had um, had ownership over. They wanted to kind of conquer another people and kind of take over. And and he saw how the human ambition to do these things kind of led to war and that in the name of peace that there were sometimes people who would take up arms and create war so that they could have the peace that they really wanted. This troubled him as he was a soldier and, and one day he was uh, on the battlefield and unfortunately uh, for his running career he was shot. Now if he was shot in the shoulder or the arm. Well, I don't want anyone to be shot, and I didn't want him to take a bullet, you know, when I was reading this story either. But had he taken one to a different part of his body, like his shoulder or his arm or something like that, uh, he may have still been able to run. But the bullet struck his ankle and shattered his bones. This certainly and immediately ended any idea or dream that he had to be a long-distance runner. He may be able to run again. He may be able to get his mobility back. But here he is in the the late 1940s, early 1950s as a as someone who they don't have the medical advancements that we have today, and they were unable to reconstruct his ankle in a way to where he would be <clears throat> a long distance runner ever again, um, especially in a competitive environment. But as he recounts this particular time frame. He said um, that he wasn't serving God. And when he got wounded on the battlefield, they immediately took him to the hospital, and the hospital that he was put in was actually um, uh, run by Franciscan nuns. Now, I think pretty much everybody knows what a nun is for the Catholic Church. You know, it's somebody who... You know, it's it's a it's a woman who is unmarried who's given her life to service in the church. I think that's probably uh, pretty obvious for most of us. But Franciscan nuns, I did a little bit digging on my own and found that um, they have a very specific goal. The Franciscan nuns, they uh, they state that our time is divided between prayer, work, and ministry. Our mission and ministry is to quote make known God's merciful love, unquote, by spiritual and corporal works of mercy among the poor, the sick, and those in need of evangelization. So these Franciscan nuns found a place where they could do all three. They could care for people. They could express God's uh, merciful love. They could make that known. They could talk to people who were in need of spiritual help, physical help, people who um, were poor, people who were sick or injured or wounded in the case of Brother Andrew, and in need of evangelization, which there were so many people who came into the hospitals that were unbelievers. So what they did is they committed to go there and care for people in a way to be the salt and the light in a place that had a great need. They committed to that. They um, cared for all the patients there, but in this particular instance, they also cared for Brother Andrew. This was the very first place that Andrew heard, not about Christ as some far-off thing or, you know, just person who lived a long time ago and got to live like him, No, he actually saw these Franciscan nuns live out, live out 
the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, understanding that it that comes from being filled with the Spirit. He saw the evidence of a change, transform life in their heart, and he was gripped by it. And it's the first time he ever heard of the presence of Christ actually living within you, like through his Holy Spirit, and um, empowering you to do things that you weren't naturally able to do. And in this moment, watching these nuns who were or were, were, didn't go go in his room and you know and have a rally or something like that. They just cared for him and they showed him what a changed life from Christ looks like. He was so captured by that and the statement that Christ's spirit could live in us and empower us to do these things that at that point in time he started to first consider there's a good chance that this might be true because I see the evidence and people who are being the salt and light in this area. <clears throat> after he was released from, uh, after Brother Andrew was released from the hospital, he immediately went home and was discharged from the military, and he went home so quickly because while he was on the battlefield, he received the, tra- the tragic news that his mom, who had a number of health problems um, as he was a younger man and while he was out in the battlefield had passed away. He was not able to be there for her funeral, for her burial. And so when he left, he said goodbye to his living mother. And when he got home, he had to go and see her graveside. His dad immediately took him there when he got home and he was so overwhelmed by the loss of emotion and with this experience that he just had in this hospital with these with these nuns who were who were exampling God talking about God they were doing all these great things and and representing Christ well he just he he, he had, had that going on in his heart he's sitting here looking at his mother's grave and he didn't know what to do it was so profoundly impacting for him that that night when they went home and they were getting ready for bed that night, he actually snuck out, grabbed a bike that one of his family members had, and rode it all the way back to the cemetery. He laid across his mom's grave and just cried out for her. And silence. He sat there after he kind of gathered himself from being emotional. He sat there next to the grave of his, of his mother and began to contemplate some things in life. I don't know if you've ever had a moment at a funeral where you could kind of take stock of where you are and what I've done and how much time I might have left and you know, and kind of done the math in your head and be like, man, I really want to make a bigger difference than I have. I have had that experience. And Andrew had this kind of same encounter sitting at his mother's grave. He was contemplating the meaning of life. Here his mother was gone and, and, and he's sitting at her graveside and could never talk to her again. <clears throat> and he is just trying to figure out what does all this mean? And his heart and his mind wandered back to the conversations that he had with those Franciscan nuns in the hospital who cared for him when he was wounded. You know, in today's culture, we may see people in this predicament act a certain way. I don't think it's everybody, but there is a publicized, you know, very 
a publicized area of our culture, highly visible area of our culture that promotes victimhood. And if I'm honest, if I look at my own life and say, man, had my had I had all these dreams of athletics and then I took a bullet in kind of one of the key areas that would derail me from my dream that my I would sit here in the hospital and have to be reclaimed. I didn't know if I even liked the the cause we were out there fighting for with the army of my nation. And now I'm, now I'm getting word that my mother died while it was gone and I can't see her again. I'm sitting here. There would be a lot of people going, why did God do this to me? Why in the world has this happened to me? Why did a loving God let this terrible stuff happen to me? And they immediately default to why me levels of depression, victimhood, but <clears throat> That's not what Brother Andrew did. See, God used this tragedy to send him to a hospital to receive the, the seeds of faith for people who were sowing and watering those seeds by being the salt and the light to him. And at that point, he took one more step in his decision to follow Christ. See, he began, he began to think about how short life was and what the meaning of life was as he sat there at his mom's grave and he concluded something. He just thought it through. That if God was real, then he would be able to give him a meaningful existence. Something to do that would be so significant and not destructive in nature like the war and the and the loss that he just watched and the casualties that he just watched when he was on the battlefield. That day at his mother's graveside was another pivotal moment in his pursuit and his heart to seek after God and true meaning in life. <clears throat> See, Andrew wasn't raised in a church. He didn't go to the conference or the youth camp or the or the rally. And I'm not against any of those things. But all of us know people who have been to like this one night event. And it has been this. And in some instances, it's been a culmination of everything that God has brought brought them to. And they just gave their life to Christ. I had a moment like that um, uh, when I was a young person that kind of just definitively pushed me over the edge, brought me back from a rebellious time against God. But there's also you also know people who um, who have gone to these events and got super emotional. I'm going to give my life to God, and then after they leave the environment of the camp or the conference or the service or whatever, they go home and they kind of fall apart and fall back into their own routine, their old ways of thinking, their old friends, and it's just and they it doesn't really stick. <clears throat> he went through a very gradual process, and we talked about this last week. That wherever we go, whatever you do. When you go to work, when you're talking to your family, when you're dealing with your friends, when you're at a, at a holiday dinner with your extended family, whatever it is, you are constantly sowing seed. You are constantly watering those seeds. You are salt and light in those areas, and that is what we're supposed to be doing. Brother Andrew had been going through this gradual process, and that pushed him to read the Bible. And he started digging into God's Word and reading it. And, and, and he didn't get saved and then go read the Bible. He read the Bible in his pursuit of Christ. <clears throat> and then one day after reading a lot 
of Scripture. He knelt down next to his bed. No lights, no screens, no lasers, no fog machines. None of that's wrong, but just in his case, none of that was there. And he just uttered a simple prayer. He said, I believe you. God, I believe you. I believe your word. And I'm asking you to please give me this life that you are talking about, and I will follow you. There wasn't a hallelujah chorus. There wasn't people, you know, doing a Jericho march around his bedroom. There wasn't anybody who was shouting and hollering, and all that's fine. But in his case, he prayed, laid down, went to sleep, got up the next day, and went back to the things that he was doing in his normal life. But as he went through his day, his normal routine, the things he normally did, people would look at him and say, Andrew, dude, what's up with you? And he's like, what do you mean? You look different. Like you got a different look on your face today. I can't, can't really explain it, but you, you sound different. Like, what is it? They, they recognize the difference in him. <clears throat> he kind of passed it off as like, well, that was kind of strange. And then later in the afternoon, somebody else came up to him and said, hey, man, are you good? You look different. Like, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's just you look different. You talk different. You sound different. You start to act different. And over the course of uh, of the next several days, he had more and more people come to him and identify this change in him. And he went back home and he's kind of getting a little self-conscious about it. And he thought, wow, wait a minute. That all happened after I prayed. And God, and he realized at that moment, God had a massive influence in his life. And it was influencing everything he was doing from that point forward. God had answered his prayer. He had given him this new life. At that point in time, he wanted to pursue God a little bit further and increase his understanding. So he moved from the Netherlands to Glasgow, Scotland to to join a Bible college. It was a rough experience for him because he didn't speak English very well, but he was able to kind of muscle through it and power through it. And as he was there, he began to read the Lord. Uh, he, be, he began to read the Lord's prayer, and there was a, a phrase in the Lord's prayer that really captured him: "Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven." Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that just resonated over and over in his heart. It's like, what does it mean? As he got into his study and as he put more thought to it and as he prayed, he concluded that God's will um, was unhindered in heaven. What God wanted to happen was unhindered in the heavenly realm. And so what what he concluded that Jesus was saying is that I want God's will to be done here on earth and I want it to be unhindered. That began to to, to marinate in his life. And as he was wrapping up his Bible college time, he ran into, um, he ran into a flyer that was advertising this event in Warsaw, Poland. That was um, in 1955. And he saw this event and it was in his heart because he, he said, you know, I wonder if there's any believers in Poland. Now that I think about it, I haven't really heard about the church in Poland. Let me just go there. There's a big a festival, an event here. Let me just go to the festival and just start asking around and see if <clears throat> I can find people here who were part of the church. And he went there, traveled all the way from Scotland to Poland, 
got to the festival and was very lonely. He didn't know anybody. He felt like he was out of place. He did, hadn't really found any other Christian people that, um, that were at this festival. And then on Sunday, he was looking for a church, began to ask people, hey, is there a Christian church around here? And they pointed him to a place, and he found a small group of believers, a small fellowship, a church of believers who got together on Sunday to worship and study together. As he walked in, they were the people at the Polish church were just astounded and ecstatic of that there was somebody from the outside, from another country, from somewhere else that um, cared enough about them to just come check on them and see what happened and then how they were doing. And so when he got there, they began to tell uh, horrific stories of of abuse and persecution and how some of their church leaders were thrown in jail and imprisoned. <clears throat> and he and he was he was thinking, oh my goodness, this is terrible. How can I help? How can I help? And um and while he was there at the festival, he read another piece of scripture. Notice the first thing that gripped his heart was a scripture from the Lord's Prayer. And this is the second thing that gripped him. Revelation 3 verses two and three. Wake up, strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. If you, do, if you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as an unexpected as a thief. That first that, that second sentence there, that first part of the passage, the second sentence that we read, strengthen what little remains for even what is left is almost dead, just grabbed him. He couldn't get away from this particular passage, and he just had this vision in his mind and in his heart that the churches were what was being referred to here, that there were dying churches, people who were struggling, much like this church in Poland, who were struggling and needed encouragement, they needed to be strengthened, and that he, at that moment, realized through the the, the power of God's Word and the revelation of the Holy Spirit that this is what he was supposed to do. He was supposed to find ways to um, not you know, not just reach the lost. He was doing that in in, in his own way and relational and, and making friends with people who were who were unsaved. But he really felt a massive burden to try and strengthen the churches that were struggling, especially in areas where serving Christ was illegal. <clears throat> he um, he realized when he was in Poland that um, there was a desperate need for Bibles and. When he tried to bring in Bibles to Poland, they told him, you can only bring one. You can't bring a bunch of them. And so he began to hide Bibles in his luggage, underneath clothes, underneath shoes, in his car, in different places. And that as he was going across a checkpoint of the border, he realized, man, if I get caught on any one of these instances, it's over for me. <clears throat> and he would pray every single time that God would shield the eyes of the people who were at the border from seeing the Bibles, and in every instance it happened. They just couldn't find them. Whether they were distracted, whether they were um, not paying really close attention, they were just kind of going through the motions, not really caring what people were bringing into the country or whatever, God orchestrated it so that those Bibles could get in, and he was sneaking, he was smuggling Bibles into Poland. 
<clears throat> the next place he went was um, Czechoslovakia, another nation in Europe. And when he walked into the church that he found there, he saw an older woman who sat in the very front row of the church, and she had her Bible open and holding it up over her head so the words were facing behind her. And all of the people in the church would come close to where she was, and they would just read the Bible when she would hold it up that way. He thought it was kind of odd at first. Like, why didn't you just everyone read their own Bible? And then he realized she had the only copy. Again, here he was trying to encourage and, and strengthen um, a, a dying church, like they were being persecuted. And so what he did was he went and found a way to get them Bibles as well. He began to smuggle more Bibles into the country and give them to the people so they had a Bible of their own in their own language. The people were so ecstatic that they began to, that they wanted to help him in his effort to go do this all over Europe. And so um, he, uh, they gave him a little blue car, like this VW Bug, and he smuggled Bibles behind the Iron Curtain and into countries where it was, was illegal for the next several years. He did it so often and so well that he became known as God's smuggler. He became an expert in smuggling Bibles into the country, and he would roll up to a, a border, and they would have all of these laws about uh, you can't bring in Bibles, and he would pray, God, you blind, you have healed the blind. I want you to blind their eyes from seeing your word so I can get these Bibles to your people. And in almost 20 years of doing that throughout his life, he never once lost one Bible. <clears throat> He went to the church in Siberia to try to encourage them, and they were so excited that someone came there because they hadn't had a visitor who was a Christian from outside of Siberia for 40 to 50 years. He was there. He brought them Bibles. He preached to them. He encouraged them. Let, him, let them know that other believers were out there in these other nations. Today, you could say, well, why don't you do what you're doing now? But there was no technology like we have today available to them to be encouraged that the gospel was still being proclaimed throughout the world. <clears throat> this became the foundation for a ministry that Brother Andrew opened called Open Doors. And they started as a ministry that would try to find persecuted churches throughout the world, set up contacts in those nations, and try to smuggle Bibles to them all over the planet. But in 1975, the year I was born, Brother Andrew had a very strong desire to help the persecuted church, specifically in China. <clears throat> the only problem was Mao Zedong was still the um, was still the the communist leader, and he had murdered. I think uh, the estimates are somewhere in the in the 40 to 50 million people uh, his own people as a dictator. He was very harsh with Christian people and he had banished so many people from the country. They couldn't even live there because he found that they were Christian people. Brother Andrew put out the word in every channel that he could 
to say, I want to meet with whoever wants to help me smuggle Bibles into China in the Philippines. And so more than 400 Chinese leaders, almost all of which were um, kicked out of the country, uh, out of China by Mao, they all met together and started to plan this massive operation. It was started because a woman uh, reached out uh, through a letter to to Brother Andrew and to the Open Doors organization and said, you know, is there any way that we can get a lot of Bibles, like not 20 or 30, but maybe 30,000 Bibles, because I could, I could easily give them out to a lot of people right now. And so as they considered it and thought about what a massive operation it would be, they're like, man, if we're going to do this, you know, I don't know if you've heard the statement, go big or go home, but that was kind of their attitude. <clears throat> they decided the best course of action was to try and find a way to get one million Bibles smuggled into China for the people to have their own copy. It was going to be a massive undertaking, and they decided it was worthwhile, and they were going to spend the next several years kind of planning and getting uh, and getting um, their 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 kind of their ducks in a row and figuring out their strategy. And so, in 1976. Mao passed away. Now, the government was still, you know, um, uh, anti-Christianity, but they allowed most of these 400 Chinese leaders to come back into China. And so what that did was they had already started the strategic initiative, and that gave them 400 additional leadership entry points for helping them from the inside smuggle in Bibles. It took them five years. Five additional years after the death of Mao <clears throat> to organize a massive underground effort to get a million Bibles into China. They called that Project Pearl. And the Bibles they gave away, they called Project Pearl Bibles. In 1981, they made the decision that they were not going to be able to do multiple trips that the Chinese government was going to figure out that there's a ship that comes in every week in the same area of this remote part of China, what's going on, and it would draw too much attention. So they decided they were going to drop and deliver and smuggle all one million Bibles in one night. The people in China who were the, the Christian leaders there recruited 2,000 brave souls to come and help them in an obscure beach on China's coast retrieve these giant, um, the, the, these giant blocks of Bibles that were wrapped in something that would float and, um, and protective waterproof coverings. They had 232 one-ton uh, um, boxes or compartments, if you will, that held Bibles in every single one of them. And in one night, a ship pulled up to this particular area on the coast, dropped them as close to the shore as they could, and then 2,000 people went into the water and drugged those Bibles to the shore and then began to um, hand them out as according to their plan, and they started to take those Bibles all over the nation of China. Just so happened that the guards who were tasked with watching that portion of the beach that evening uh, decided to have a little drinking party, and they drank a little bit too much. 
And it wasn't until the very last shipment was pulled up on the shore that they realized something was going on. And by the time they got their bearing straight, they ran down to the to the shore only to see a few thousand Bibles that were left to be distributed. And they captured those and burned them, thinking, oh, we, we, we got a, a large number of them, not realizing that 99.9% of the Bibles actually made it past them. <clears throat> the, um, the, the people who ran the operation did a follow-up with the people who received the Bibles, and it's estimated that 80% of those Bibles, 800,000 of them, avoided Chinese government detection and actually made it into the hands of the believers in Asia. <clears throat> One of the leaders of the Open Door organization has a Bible today that was used for 15 years by one young man who became an evangelist. And from him having God's word in his hand, he ended up making a network of 400,000 believers together simply by using a single project pearl Bible. The leader talks about the that particular Bible with a lot of affinity. It's one of his greatest possessions. In 1978, Andrew, while waiting to do the, the Project Pearl um, smuggling operation, traveled to Uganda to en encourage a church there and was put on a government watch list of people who they were considered a threat. And he, he, had, he has uh, numerous stories of all these places that he's been. He's been to Cuba, he's been to Russia, he's been back to parts of Asia, parts of Indonesia, parts of India. He went all over the place trying to make sure that the, he was encouraging the church and that he was making sure they had enough Bibles to, <clears throat> so that people could have God's Word in their hand. In 2001, he went to Colombia to encourage a group of armed Colombian rebels to lay down their weapons, and within the next year, 15,000 of those rebels did just that. They laid down their arms in exchange for a copy of the Bible. He went several times to Islamic terrorist groups, these people who were attacking Israel and trying to, uh, to blow up and kill um, the, the Jewish people. He went to them to try to preach the gospel to them. And people question him, why in the world would you go there? Why would you go to the, the terrorist organizations? One of them was Hamas. And he says, and he, he said, the best thing that I can do for Israel is to lead the terrorists to Christ because if they become believers, they will stop this nonsense. He was eventually invited to speak to a group of 400 members of Hamas when he was talking about real biblical Christianity, not what people had, had popularized in church, which he refers to churchianity, where people weren't following Christ, they were following the, their own little tribe. And then that led him to be invited many, many times to speak to um, Islamic schools about what Christianity really was. Over the remainder of his life, he wrote 15 different books uh, detailing his experiences and encouraging other people to just do something. And today, 
that ministry that started with him and a light blue VW bug driving around uh, these back roads in Europe, smuggling Bibles and suitcases and, and the trunk of a car. That organization today serves 77 different nations, and now they don't, and they've expanded out past the point of just giving Bibles, but providing humanitarian aid for Christians who are being persecuted because they believe in Jesus. One of the things that he recounted in an interview at the end of his life was that um, he found that most people who were unbelievers had not rejected Jesus. They were not against him. What they were against was this legalistic, um, watered-down, um, this kind of churchified presentation of the gospel. That's what they rejected. But when he talked to them about Jesus directly, he found that many people were very, very open to them. He began to focus a lot on prayer. He constantly prayed for his team. He constantly prayed for additional open doors. He constantly prayed for, uh, you know, for, for ways to, the resources to kind of help fund these smuggling operations to make sure that he was doing exactly what he read in Revelation chapter 3, which was, I'm going to find the churches that are hurting, being persecuted, and maybe dying, and I want to encourage them and make sure they have God's word. He said, our prayers can go where we cannot. There are no borders, no prison walls, no doors that are closed to us when we pray. He had a, um, at his memorial, because he passed away last year in 2022, at his memorial service, they they played a couple of clips of him throughout his his life and they also played a clip that really was um, a good thing to hear, but it was definitely taking a dose of medicine for me personally. He said, the church and the Western world have become cowards. There is no risk to their faith. They do not step out beyond what they know. They don't step out beyond what is comfortable. They don't step out to actually do something. He said, we are debtors to Christ. We are in debt to him because of what he has done. And he doesn't lord that over us. He doesn't tell us, you owe me everything because I died for you. But that is the reality. We are debtors to him. And what is the best loving response that we can give to someone that we are in debt to is to take the, the gift that we've been given, the, the good news of the gospel, salvation, and take it to other people. And that is what his encouragement was. It's a little funny because the, the last clip of his memorial service, he said, a lot of people, you know, that I'm getting older have asked me, um, what, what am I going to put on my tombstone? He's like, I thought of something that would be kind of pious. You know, he's not here, he's risen, or something like that. Then he thought about, you know, God smuggler, whatever, you know, that that people had, had kind of given him these names. And he kind of went through a couple of options. And he said, but I remember seeing Oswald Chambers' grave. And all it said was a disciple of Jesus Christ. He goes, I think that honors God. That's what I'd love to have on my tombstone. 
the reason that we're talking about these stories, the reason that I'm telling you these stories over these last the last two weeks and then again next week is because <clears throat> there is a massive opportunity for us as Christ followers, as believers, to show that courage, to take the risk, to rise to the level of the opportunity to take the gospel in whatever way that God has convicted you and gripped your heart to do, that opportunity is huge right now. I talked to an older pastor probably three years ago before he passed. And I went and spoke at his church because he wasn't, he was, he was uh, sick and he was in the hospital and I covered for him for a couple months actually, just try to help out. And, um, he got, he, he met me for lunch one day and, and, I don't know if it was because of his medication or the surgery or if he was tired because, you know, he's an older gentleman in his, in his 70s. But he said, do you see any hope? Do you see any hope for America? Do you see any hope for the church? And I was stunned at the, the resolve in him that it was obvious that he thought no. And I said, well, of course, do you? He goes, I don't see it. I don't see how we get out of this. I don't see how we turn this around. I'm just kind of discouraged. And I said, brother... When, the, when, when the, the darkness increases, the light gets brighter. And you can look around at our culture and think, man, things are going to hell in a handbasket. This is like on the fast track. You know what I mean? Like highway to hell for sure, like the old song. That's kind of where the, the path that we're on. But I want to remind you that you have all of the things that you need. You have his word. You have his spirit. If you're a true believer, you have these things. And now you just need the courage. You need to follow the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life and step out and do some things. This doesn't mean that you have to move to Africa to start an AIDS hospital, but you could. It doesn't mean that you have to um, find somebody that, that needs, you know, in the middle of a tribe that no one even knows what the real language is. Like we talked about last year with Eleanor or last week with Eleanor Young. Um, But you could. It could mean that you just get together with 10 very influential people in your city and decide what are we going to do to impact this terrible area where wickedness is thriving. It could be human trafficking. It could be homelessness. It could be um, it could be hunger, it could be education, it could be anywhere. Whatever your talents are, use them as injection points for the gospel to bring an eternal return to the king. He's given all of us, all of us something that we can do. Wander into the area, learn the field, be purposeful about it. It doesn't mean that you have to have all the answers tomorrow, but walk in that direction and start to learn where you're going to go based on God's word, based on what grips your heart from his word and the leading of his spirit. I'm hoping that these stories are challenging you I've got to do something. I cannot get up in the morning, eat breakfast, go to work, pick up the kids from school, come back home, Netflix and chill, and then rinse and repeat the next day. Oh, I had a, you know, a Friday night's date night with my wife or whatever. All that is fine, fine. 
Is there something else that grips your heart? I pray that if there's not, and you're a believer in Christ, I'm going to pray that it does. I'm going to pray that you cannot get away from it. And I pray that it will be something that sits with you and is like a rock in your shoe that you can't get away from it and that you begin to make a move, actionable steps to use whatever you have to move in that direction of obedient response and become somebody who is the salt and light. What would have happened to Brother Andrew had them Franciscan nuns not volunteered to be at that hospital? Could he have set up something else? Uh, you know, could have God orchestrated some other, you know, situation for him? Yes. But those Franciscan nuns have played a massive role, just that one role, in everything that Open Doors has done because they impacted somebody who wanted to move forward for Jesus. I'm going to pray a quick prayer of blessing for you, but I'm if, if there's something that you want to do, there's something you want us to pray with you about. You can drop it in the comments below. You can message us directly, whatever you want to do. But whatever that is, I'm going to pray. I'm going to be praying this week and today, actually, that you would have the guts, the courage, the bravery through his spirit to move forward and do it. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you. And may he give you peace. Amen. We love you guys. We'll see you next week.